Welcome back to the Visions of the End series in the podcast for Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean. The last couple of weeks we dealt with First Enoch as the earliest example of an apocalyptic worldview in a full-blown sense, and also our earliest example of apocalypse's genre of literature. We place that around 200 BCE, perhaps as early as 225 BCE. The document we're going to look at today is actually in your Bible, the Book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel ostensibly is placed within the 500s BCE because the figure of Daniel, the stories about him in the first part of the book of Daniel, are about a Judean exile in Babylonia, namely in the period after 586 BCE when Babylonia comes in, takes Jerusalem, and takes away the upper classes to various places in Babylonia. And so the figure of Daniel's in the 500s BCE. However, there are clear indications, as we'll soon see, that the latter part of Daniel, chapters 7 to 12, the apocalypse proper, date to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and after. So most likely the 160s BCE. So we're still, we're just a few decades away from First Enoch here. First Enoch and Daniel together represent our earliest examples of the apocalyptic worldview in a more developed sense and our earliest example of apocalypse as a genre of literature. First Enoch was an example of the otherworldly journey and Daniel, we'll soon see today, is an example of the historical apocalypse. Let's begin as we did with Enoch with the question of who is this figure of Daniel? One of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature is the adoption of a figure from the past as the author of the visions that are expressed. And we call this pseudepigraphy. In other words, false name is the literal way of translating that word pseudepigraphy. The author of First Enoch is writing in 200 BCE, and he chose a figure from way back a few generations after Adam. With Daniel, there's a figure that's chosen from the past, but it's not quite as remote a past that is chosen. It's an author writing in the 160s BCE, choosing a figure from the 500s BCE to express these ideas about the end of the world that is coming. So let me say a few words more about the figure of Daniel here, and then we'll soon get into both the importance of Daniel for the apocalyptic worldview and the importance of Daniel for understanding historical apocalypse. Those are the two main points of today's discussion. The interesting thing about the book of Daniel, one of the interesting things, is that it has both a collection of the tales or stories or legends about this figure Daniel in exile, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 6, for six chapters, a series of stories about this figure Daniel living in Babylonia, this Judean who has been exiled. Then you have in chapters 7 to 12, the visions the apocalypse proper as we have defined that genre of literature in this series, namely a first-person visionary account where the content of these visions uh, focus on the end times. In this case, chapters 7 to 12 are an example of an historical apocalypse, and we'll need to explain what we mean by that. But before we get into looking at the apocalypse proper, we need to take a look at a couple of the stories about Daniel that make up the first chapters of Daniel. In particular, Daniel chapter 2 is very important for understanding the visions of chapters 7 to 12, 
primarily this issue of four kingdoms and a fifth. In these legends in chapters 1 to 6 generally though, Daniel is put forward as the ideal wise man, but only as the ideal wise man insofar as God works through him, the God of the Judeans, the God of the Israelites. And in a way, all of the legends in Daniel are a story about how the God of the Judeans is superior to the God of the Babylonians. And in that the wise men, Daniel and his Judean companions, uh, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as, as you know them, are ideal wise men that show up the Babylonian wise men throughout these legends about their adventures in exile. The second chapter is particularly important for understanding chapters 7 to 12, the visions that happen later. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And in this uh, story, he calls in all the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. All the wise men of Babylonia are brought into Nebuchadnezzar. And he says to them in the story, tell me what my dream was and interpret it for me. This is quite a tall order, you could say, that he's not even going to tell the wise men what his dream was. Here we're having figures from Babylonia that would be most understood in the context of mantic wisdom, namely diviners. These are Babylonian figures trained in interpreting the messages of the gods, trained as wise men in understanding what the gods are trying to tell us. And these would be the experts brought in to find out various things about the future and about what should be done. Both First Enoch and the book of Daniel are closely linked up with mantic wisdom in different ways. And here Daniel is actually going to be brought in as the ultimate wise man who can answer Nebuchadnezzar's question about his dream. So the, the idea is the wise men of Babylonia can't figure out his dream. Nebuchadnezzar gets very angry with them and says, basically, I'm going to kill all the wise men if you can't tell me what my dream is and then interpret it for me. Here in this context, Daniel is the foreigner being trained as a wise man in Babylonia and is a newcomer to the whole situation, is brought in as the hero. Basically, Daniel is brought in and successfully not only tells the King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is, but also tells him what it means. And he saves the other Babylonian wise men as a result. They won't be killed. But let's take a look at the some of the details of the dream and how Daniel is portrayed interpreting that dream. Here it's expressed as a mystery that needs to be interpreted. This is a word that we'll encounter again and again in apocalyptic literature. Take a look at chapter 2 verses 19 and following. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom, Daniel, and power, and have now revealed to me what we asked of you, for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. What's interesting to notice here at this point are some of the assumptions behind that statement we just read. 
that share in common uh, things with the apocalyptic worldview. Namely, that God is wise and that there are certain human beings that are considered special for receiving wisdom from the God of the Judeans. And that the God of the Judeans reveals deep and hidden things, uh, to quote verse 22 there. That the revelation of the secrets of God to human beings is an, uh, assumed to be something that can happen by the author of this uh, story in chapter 2. That definitely shares a lot in common with the apocalyptic worldview uh, that we're going to see in chapters 7 to 12. Take a look at verse 27 and 28 where this idea of revelation, this, this uh, notion that's important for apocalyptic thinking, comes out again. Daniel answered the king, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, the God of the Judeans, not the God of the Babylonians. And he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. So already in this story about Daniel in exile, we have apocalyptic elements coming up. The idea of revelation, the idea that this dream is about the end of days. These are characteristics of the apocalypticism that we'll see full-blown in chapter 7 to 12. Daniel goes on to say to Nebuchadnezzar, the revealer of mysteries, God, disclose to you what is to happen. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living being. <clears throat> but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So here there's the uh, Daniel attributing this to God, this wisdom that he has gained, this mantic wisdom. Here's where he explains the dream. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. He tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream. He now says the interpretation. The interpretation is that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. It then goes on in verse 39 and following. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything. It shall crush and shatter all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. It goes on a little bit further on to talk about what comes after these four kingdoms represented by the metals and by the mixture of metal and iron. In verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these earthly kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the scenario in Nebuchadnezzar's dream here is of four kingdoms represented in a declining way, from gold down to clay, and the last being broken and destroyed and replaced with God's eternal kingdom. 
This is definitely an author who shares in common with the author of the latter part of Daniel, chapter 7 to 12, an apocalyptic sort of scenario. But what's interesting here is the focus on history. The apocalyptic scenario is expressed in terms of earthly kingdoms, namely the Babylonians, the Medians, the Persians, and the Hellenistic kingdom. These are the four kingdoms in the scenario in Daniel. It becomes quite clear as you study it further. Namely, Babylonian, the first kingdom, the second kingdom, the Median, the third kingdom, the Persian, and the fourth kingdom, the Hellenistic kings that follow on Alexander the Great. Ultimately, so the dream goes, all of these kingdoms will fall and be replaced by an eternal kingdom of God. This is very much an apocalyptic worldview that we're seeing here. Now that we have that scenario of history being important for the author of Daniel, at least the legend of Daniel chapter 2, we'll soon see that this gets developed in a particular way in the apocalypse proper, in the visions of chapters 7 to 12, where Daniel himself receives a vision regarding the end times. So we have in Daniel a series of stories like this one in chapter 2 where he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the other famous ones are Daniel in the lion's den, as you know, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, fiery furnace. Each of these episodes shows the superiority of the God of the Judeans in exile and the ultimate success of Judeans, uh, these Judean men at the court of the kings themselves in exile, again set in the 500s BCE. So we have in Daniel, these chapters 1 to 6, a collection of stories about this figure of Daniel and exile that we know nothing about outside of the book of Daniel. We know nothing about the figure of Daniel uh, from any other sources, so we can't say much about it historically. But we have in the latter part, chapters 7 to 12, a series of visions that relate directly to history, not only history in the 500s BCE, but history from the 500s BCE, from the Babylonian period, into the Persian period, and into the Hellenistic period. And the book of Daniel as we have it, the latter half of it, chapters 7 to 12, dates from the 160s BCE, even though the sum of the legends that exist in chapters 1 to 6 may well go back some time before, maybe even back to the 500s BCE, we have no way of knowing. But what we know is the form in which we have Daniel comes from the 160s BCE, primarily because of all the historical references in the visions of chapters 7 to 12, which lead his, the scholars also to categorize this apocalypse as an historical apocalypse. In essence, chapters 7 to 12, the visions, give a history in a veiled way of the Babylonians, the Persians, and especially the Hellenistic kings. Let me say a few words about what led the authors of the Apocalypse proper, chapter 7 to 12, to write these visions up. And that is, there was a crisis situation in Judea in the 160s BCE. You may know that Alexander the Great took over a large territory from Macedonia east, and after his death, those territories were divided among different kingdoms, known as the Hellenistic kingdoms. The kingdoms that matter to us are the Seleucid kingdom in the north, north of Judea and Israel, that include Asia Minor and Syria in, under their reign, and the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. 
these two kingdoms are named after important kings. Seleucus was one of the kings of the original kingdom uh, that included Syria and Asia Minor, and Ptolemy being uh, the name of the king in the south. So historians talk about this as the Seleucid kingdom of the Hellenistic kingdoms and the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. Now, during the 160s BCE, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes was his epithet, uh, revealed, was the king of the Seleucid kingdom. And during his reign, he was having difficulties in trying to maintain territory between his realm and the Ptolemaic realm, and was wanting, wanting to extend his territory into the Ptolemaic kingdom. He was having skirmishes and battles with the Ptolemies. So the Seleucid kingdom, led by Antiochus Epiphanes, attacking and having wars with the Ptolemaic kingdom, both of them being Hellenistic kingdoms. As you can imagine, Judea and Jerusalem and Israel are caught in the middle because they are geographically between the two kingdoms. And so they become very important territory in this, the struggles between the two powers in this period. Antiochus is worried about trying to take over portions of Egypt and maintain control of Israel. And in the midst of this, there are internal problems happening within Israel itself, internal problems happening especially in Jerusalem and within Judea. And that is debates among Judeans over what degree of Hellenistic culture was acceptable in order to still maintain Judean identity alongside Hellenistic identity. And so there were some people who thought that you could adopt, for example, the Hellenistic mode of education, Hellenistic gymnasium, and that you could have a gymnasium of the Hellenistic variety, of the Greek variety, in Jerusalem, and that Judean youth could be trained in Greek education in some ways, that you could adopt Greek language some Judeans felt was acceptable. Some Judeans, however, had a more stark idea of what was not acceptable or acceptable, and felt that even that Hellenistic gymnasium and Hellenistic education could not be accepted. And so there were debates among Judeans with, as you can imagine, a spectrum of, of opinion being possible among Judeans about what degree of Hellenistic culture can we Judeans accept and still consider ourselves loyal to Yahweh, the God of the Judeans. And so these internal strifes were sometimes leading to struggles over the high priesthood so that one high priest would be in power and another high priest would pay off the Hellenistic king in order to gain control of the high priesthood of the temple and that that high priest may be more favorable towards Hellenizing, making Jerusalem more Greek than the previous high priest. And so these we can't go into the details of who all these figures are, but the point is there's internal strife and almost the equivalent of civil war going on at times. And what happens is some of these incidents are interpreted by the Hellenistic king Antiochus Epiphanes as revolt. And he sends in soldiers and armies to quell revolts in order to avoid the problems this may cause in his ability to fight against Ptolemy and take over portions of Egypt and gain more control over the Ptolemaic kingdom. In the midst of these quelling of the internal strife in Judea, that ultimately led to the Maccabean revolt. On one occasion, either Antiochus Epiphanes himself or his soldiers 
went into the temple and committed a sacrilege by doing something within the temple with the implements in the temple. Also, his soldiers, Syrian soldiers, that fight on behalf of the Seleucid Empire, that were based in Jerusalem, set up an altar in the temple of Yahweh for their own god, most likely Baal Shamim. Zeus Olympius is the Greek equivalent of Baal Shamim. This is the altar that the book of Daniel frequently refers to, most likely is identifying with the desolating sacrilege or the abomination that desolates, whatever your translation may have. This is what is being alluded to in those passages. This action of soldiers setting up an altar for a different god in the temple of the Judean god in Jerusalem. Now the history of this whole era is documented by the books known as Maccabees that you'll find in your Apocrypha if you have a Bible with Apocrypha. There is 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. The difficulty with these documents is that they conflict with one another on the details of the historical incidents. All of them agree on this crisis. All of them agree that the Maccabee family revolted against the, what had happened, but they differ on the details. So I've been very general in what I've said in part because we don't really know historically in a reliable way exactly what happened. But we do know that Antichus Epiphanes and his uh, ambassadors, his, his uh, uh, people who helped him rule the Seleucid kingdom, took actions in Jerusalem that were considered sacrilegious in relation to the temple and that were considered a violation of the covenant the Judeans had with their God and that were a violation of Judean law and that uh, the king and his rulers were trying to encourage Judeans to break the Judean law. So it's this crisis situation where some Judeans are seeing Hellenistic culture impeding upon Judean culture to a degree that the proper worship of their God was threatened, that led to the Maccabees uh, leading a revolt and successfully regaining the temple and cleansing it, what ended up becoming the Feast of Lights, as you know, Hanukkah is a celebration of the Maccabean family, a, a family of Judeans, getting enough Judeans behind them and supporting them to actually overthrow the Seleucids' control of Jerusalem and then ultimately the Seleucids' control of Judea and gaining more and more territory. And then you have what is known as the Hasmonean or Maccabean period, where these descendants of this Maccabee family become the high priests and ultimately the kings and high priests of Jerusalem and Judea up to the time the Romans come in. But what's important for us here is that the author of Daniel, although he probably was not part of the Maccabean revolt, he does not seem to see himself in a military role at all. He shares in common the perception that the actions of the Hellenistic king Antiochus Epiphanes IV were violating God's temple and violating God's covenant, and that this was a dire crisis that was the end of the world, you could say. The mindset of the book of Daniel is the crisis in the 160s BCE, when Antiochus does these different things and his soldiers do these different things, is the equivalent of the end of the world. God is going to intervene and wipe out this evil situation and set up his new kingdom any moment in the mindset of the author of Daniel. 
That completes our initial introduction of the book of Daniel. And in the next episode, we finally get into what is known as the apocalypse proper. Chapters 7 to 12 is an example of a first-person visionary account regarding the end of days. So I hope you come again.